Well, our church exists. So you probably know this if you've been around a while, but we, we have a, basically three things that we say we're about. We say we exist to love Jesus, love people, and help people love Jesus. That's why we're here. Uh, we want to love Jesus, love people, and help people love Jesus. That is our driving desire. That's our mission. That's why these doors are open. Um, but the question that needs to be answered is how do we actually do that in a way that honors the Lord Jesus? You see, there, there is a way in which we can go through the right motions or look like we are doing the right things and, and actually not honor Jesus in that. The Bible is really, really clear about this, that we can go through the religious activities and maybe even look really good on the outside but have hearts that are not near him and don't love him. We need to be careful about that. And so as we get into Isaiah, we're, we're really turning the corner to the end of the book. We, we're in the final section. There's three major sections in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the first is the first 39 chapters. So a good chunk of the book is the first section. And that's where Isaiah is dealing with his own generation, the, the Israelites in his day, and, and talking about their apostasy, their, their rejection of, of God and his covenant with them. And as a result, God's going to prepare for them to be disciplined through the Babylonian uh, empire coming in. That's the first 39 chapters. Then you have 40 through 55 or 54, no, 55, yep. Um, and that, that section is dealing with the Messiah and, and how the Messiah will be the one to rescue these people, ultimately not just from their earthly enemies of Babylon and Assyria, but from the ultimate enemy of their sin and their rebellion. And then you get into 56, which we started last week, and this is the, the new section. And here Isaiah is looking at, into the future. He's looking into what Christ will do, what he will accomplish, which is talked about in chapter 53. And we see the Messiah's suffering and we see his, his vic victory over death in, in those in chapters of the second section. And here it's like we're looking into the future and going, what is the, what is the Messiah actually going to do tangibly in his people's lives? How is he going to change them? How is he going to bring revival to, to his people and, and make a difference in the world? And so last week we talked about that. We, we talked about how we can live in a gospel-centered culture when we understand the finished work of Christ and begin to apply that to our lives. And there was a lot of good positive examples of what that looks like and then some negative examples of how to avoid uh, the, the opposites of those. And so uh, as we get into 58 and 59, though, what we're going to see is this breakdown where the people are doing outwardly the right things, at least some of the time, but have really no commendation from the Lord. And he's going to speak really harshly to them, but in, in a gracious and loving way, right? He's going to speak truth to them, but he's not going to do it to destroy them, but to bring them to him. So um, here's, here's the deal. Like, obviously, this is addressed to a, a culture, a time many, many years ago, but there's relevance to our lives because 
we often think, all of us think at some point or another, that as long as we're doing the right things, right? As long as we're jumping through the right hoops, going through the motions, then God's going to be happy with us. It's like, that's how we kind of view this contractual relationship with God. If I show up to church, if I give a little bit of money here and there, if I help somebody who needs help once in a while, then God is obligated to be happy with me. But, but the problem is that the Bible teaches us something different. It, it tells us that God cares way more about why we do what we do. He cares about the motives of our hearts far more than, what he, than, than that he cares that we just do the right things. And we're going to see that in this text really, really clearly. Uh, he cares that our hearts are right with him. And so what this text is going to show us is it's going to take us to um, our basically pretension of thinking that we can just do the right things and make God happy with us. He's going to break down that whole belief system. He's then going to show us what true uh, heart-changed faith looks like, and then he's going to show us the path to get there. And and so he doesn't leave us without help in that. So let's look. uh, We'll turn here, get the words up on the screen for you, and we'll start in verse 1 and go down to verse 5. Um, but we'll, we'll stop at verse 1 and 2 and talk for a minute. So here's what it says. The righteous, oh, I'm in verse 57, chapter 57, 58. Okay, cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions to the house of Jacob, their sins. All right, stop there for a second. All right, so this is God speaking to Isaiah and saying to them, here's your job. Call out the sins of my people. Call them out. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Don't hold back. Tell them what they need to hear. Tell them what's going on. Now, you would, you would expect the next thing to be, all right, your idolatry, which they were very, very guilty of, right? Worshiping false gods. They're maybe murder, adultery, lying, thieving, whatever, right? You might, you'd expect this to be what he's complaining about. Uh, and wants to confront them about. But look at verse two. He says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Now, did you catch this? He's saying Isaiah, call them out for their sin, and here's their sin. They seek me daily. What? (laughs) He says, they delight to know my ways, and yet he's calling this sin. How does that work? Why is this happening? How how do we make sense of this? Well, there's the key here is in verse 2, these two little, two very little words, as if. Did you catch that? They, They... Seek me daily, delight to know my ways as if they were a nation of righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. In other words, they're pretending. They're pretending to pursue God every day. They're pretending as if they're righteous people. They're going through the motions, sure, but they're not going through it in a way that's actually transforming their lives. 
And, and here, verse 3, if you go there, we, we can look at this even further because God is now going to quote them, the people that he's confronting here. At the beginning, it says, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? You hear what they're saying? Saying, God, why are we doing this if you're not going to give us the pat on the back? Why are, you, why are we even going through these motions if you're not going to actually be thankful for our such great things for you? Like they're treating God as if he needs them. God doesn't need them. He doesn't need us. Isaiah, or excuse me, uh, and Paul says in the book of Acts uh, in 17, it says that God is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. He, Paul was contrasting the idols of the Greek world which had a lot of gods and a lot of temples, but those temples and gods needed attendance. They needed helpers. Paul's saying, our God doesn't need help. He doesn't need us at all. And yet the people in Israel in Isaiah's day are going, why are we fasting? Why are we going through these religious motions if you're not going to pay attention to it? Let's keep reading. It says, God is now going to speak to that. He says, behold, In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast. Sure, you fast. You're going through this religious activity only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? He's saying to them, you are going through the right motions. You're doing them for all the wrong reasons. The reason that they're going through this, this process of fasting and following the Sabbath and doing these other things that were asked of them, um, the reason they're doing it, God says, is for selfish reasons, for their own pleasure. And it's not because they love Jesus or, or what they knew of Jesus in this point in time. It's not that they loved God and others. That's not what was motivating their religious activity. It was their own selfishness that was motivating their religious activity. So, so here is the thing, right? We have a problem put in front of us. And the problem is uh, we're, we're doing the right things, but God might not actually be very happy with us in that. So where's the disconnect? What's the disconnect? Why, why can they do the right things, but God says, I don't care about that because your hearts aren't right with me? What, what's the solution? Well, we're going to, as we keep walking through it, that, that answer will, will be clear. Let's look at verse uh, 6 and 7. Um, it says, Is not this the fast that I choose? All right, so God's going to say, here's, here's what a real fast. In my book, as I look at it, if, if you want to do what's right in my sight, here's what I would say. It says, To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? He's saying, you, 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 want, to, you, you want to do something that honors me? Then it all comes down to the motivation of your heart, which is you should love me, which then should lead you to love people and that should lead you to, to see people love Jesus in, as, as it goes, right? He, he's, he's drilling down into this and he, he's saying, this is what would honor me, is if your heart would be right and because of the motivation of your heart, you would say, you know what? These people around me need my help and I'm gonna meet those needs. God is not impressed by our faux, fake, phony attempts to make him happy. He wants us to genuinely love the people around us. Now that's not, I don't want I, I, I want to be clear, like we can't fake this. You can't fake this. Um, not really. Like, yeah, you can fake it to a certain point, um, but we can, but people will see through, through that pretty quickly. If you really love the people around you, that's going to be obvious if it's coming from a right place in your heart. Um, you can uh, you know, for a while, fake this. But if, but if there's no real heart change motivating these activities through the gospel of Jesus Christ, then, then ultimately it's going to break down. You can't fake loving people for very long. But this is the kind of fast that God cares about. Love people, care for them, meet their needs. Which isn't actually a fast, is it? That's like, Fasting is when you don't eat for a season to, to do whatever, you know, to honor the Lord or to pray or to show your dependency on him. There's a place for fasting in the Christian life. But God's going, I don't care if you don't eat something. What I care about is whether or not you are feeding the hungry. All right, so as we keep going here, uh, God is going to then tell us what will be the outcome of following this uh, this heart change and pursuing Jesus. Verse eight says, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking Wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt you shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, that sounds like 
A lot of conditions, right? If you do this, then this will happen. But, but I, I want to just contend with you that this is not just laying out works righteousness for us. It's not laying out this, this okay, you do this and I'll do this kind of an arrangement with God. No, it, this is the natural outcome of a changed heart. This is what will naturally flow from people who have been transformed by the grace of Jesus. It says in verse, at the end of verse 13, he says, he's talking about the Sabbath and he's talking about fasting. And he says, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. All of that, not seeking your own ways, not seeking your own pleasure, not to, that's all heart change, right? Because you can't make yourself do something that is against your nature. It is our nature to, to seek pleasure for ourselves. It is our nature, our sinful nature, to, to seek our own ways. That is by definition what it means to be a sinner. To seek, so, so this is all conditional upon not our works righteousness, but on the grace of God transforming us through Jesus Christ in making our hearts new so that we don't have a, a dead sinful heart that wants to just seek our own ways and our own pleasure. We have to see that, that change and transformation and the things that God can do through us will happen as the, the regenerated work of the Spirit in our hearts takes place. And so what we're seeing here is that God will use us in other people's lives to help people love Jesus as we pursue him with the right heart, a heart of repentance and faith. So what chapter 58 has been dealing with is, is that Israel and, and really all of us at one point or another were doing good things in a sense, but they were doing it for the wrong reasons. And so we have to still answer another question though. We have to answer, how do we actually get that transformation? Where does that come? We haven't seen how we get there yet. So that's where chapter 59 takes us. And, and I'll just tell you, 59 is not a warm, fuzzy chapter, but it, it will get us to where we need to be. So we're not going to take a ton of time. We're, we'll read through some of this. I may skip through some of this, so just be prepared back there. You might have to follow along, pay attention um, for the screen's sake. But, but here's, here's the key, right? Look at verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. That's the key verse. How do we get from point A to point B? How do we get from um, fake religiosity of, of pretending to do the right thing so that God will be happy with us? How do we get from that to a real heart change that can lead to uh, a work of the Spirit among us? How do we get there? That's what verse 1 answers. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not dull that he cannot hear. In other words, 
the only way we get from point A to point B is because God is actually working actively to save us and to make us whole. But, but here's the thing. Chapter 59 is going to really drill down deep into this, this issue of our unrighteousness. And I think there's a reason why. Like it's, in fact, Paul quotes uh, this chapter in, I think, chapter three of Romans, which is the part of Romans where he's really making the case that everyone is a sinner and in need of grace. And he quotes some of the, the verses we're going to look at here. Um, this is really going to show us something unpleasant about ourselves, but it's intentional because without knowing truly how bad we are as sinners, we will go through our life living as if 58 is true. Like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just be a good person and live my life happily that way. We will live in that delusion that we're somehow able to make God happy with us if we do the right things. And God has to bust up that, that delusional belief and show us the truth about ourselves. But he doesn't do it without leaving us with hope. He starts with hope. The Lord's arm is not too short to reach you. You may be way down into a pit, but God can reach you. You may be somewhere where no one else can hear you, but God can hear your cries for help. But we're going to see that there's a real need for, for the Lord's saving work. Look at verse 2. It says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. The webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. This is what Paul quotes. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. We could keep going and going, but we got to get through this and, and get to the New Testament as well. So um, with that said, man, there, this is really clearly laying out the case that we are not inherently good people. We need an intervening grace to, to reach our hearts and to change us. Otherwise, this is our predicament. We are separated from God. We do not have a relationship with him in ourselves. We need divine grace. So if you skip down to verse 20, I'm not saying that the rest of this isn't important, but we're short on time. So if you look down at verse 20, it says this, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. A redeemer will come. So, so the problem is we are all 
in sin. We are all separated from God in our natural condition. Our hearts are not for him or with him. We are separated from him. There is a chasm between us and our holy God. And we cannot bridge that chasm on ourselves, by ourselves. So what we have to do is we have to depend on someone else, a redeemer. Someone from outside of ourselves has to come and, and save us and draw us away from our transgressions. Verse 21, he says, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or out of your mouth, out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. What he's saying is this, that the Redeemer will come he will save his people from their sins. And, and that is going to lead to a legacy of salvation for generations and generations. It's what um, Abraham was promised by God way, way back in Genesis, that he would have so many children and grandchildren that they would not be able to be counted. They would be like the stars in the sky. And, and Paul in Romans 4, which is interesting that he he pivots there immediately after quoting chapter 59 of Isaiah. He pivots into this discussion about how God's saving work of the nations is the, through Jesus, is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And he says that all who believe are children of Abraham. We are a part of that generational salvation of, of Christ. So we're seeing this this trajectory what we're just if, just if, in case you're having trouble following what we're seeing is that we can go through the motions and not please God and God will tell us that it doesn't please him so what what's the solution well the solution is to hear the the brutal truth that we are sinners and need a redeemer but when we receive that salvation from our Redeemer and we turn from our sin, we repent and believe in Jesus, then our whole lives are changed and we start to actually live in a way that God wants us to live. You can't live how God wants you to live if you're not transformed by his grace. You can fake it, you can pretend, but you, you can't honor him unless you are uh, doing so through a changed heart. And so if, if you want to go with me to the New Testament, we're going to turn to Titus chapter 3. We could go to a lot of places. We could go to Ephesians 2. We could go to the book of Romans. We could go a lot of places. But I think Paul really summarizes well in Titus 3, 1 through 8, how this works. Looking at the redemption of Jesus Christ how does it actually get us from point A to point B? Look, look at what he says. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, if we just read that, we would go, okay, here's another list of things I got to do. And if our hearts aren't changed, we're never going to do them. But we got to keep reading because Paul's not telling us more to do. 
He's telling us that this is an overflow of what God has done in us. Look at verse three. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Well, that gives you the warm fuzzies inside, right? Wow, that's so great. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for, but he's saying the same thing God's saying in Isaiah. He's saying, this is what I want you to do. What I want you to do is love people, but here's a problem. You can't love people by yourself because your heart is the opposite of of love in your sinfulness. So what's the solution? Verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. That's the best news we could ever hear. You were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to your own passions and pleasures, all these things that Isaiah is talking about. But here's the good news. A redeemer has come into the world. His goodness and loving kindness appeared and he saved us. Look at verse five. He saved us, but just so no one's confused, it's not because of works done by us in righteousness. God did not save me or you because he looked at us and we're like, oh, look at this sweet person who I just have to have on my team. No, no, no. He didn't save us because of the things we've done in righteousness. He saved us according to his own mercy. In other words, you and I are saved if we're saved today, if we know Jesus today. It is only because God looked at us and said, I have pity for this person who needs a redeemer and I'm going to offer him grace or her grace. He saved us not according to our own righteousness, but according to his, his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. These words, regeneration and renewal, are really important because they get to the heart of what God does for us in the gospel. Regeneration is a fancy theological word for a new heart. He's taken our old dead heart and he's given us a new heart, a living heart, a beating heart that beats for Jesus. He's washed us clean from our sin. He's regenerated our hearts. He's renewed us by the Holy Spirit, whom he's poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, justified is another important word, means being made right with God. You can think of it this way, just, justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. God replaces our sin with his righteousness on through Christ's death on the cross. And so being justified, how? By his grace, by his free, undeserved, unmerited gift of mercy, he saved us and justified us that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Then it says this, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, there's no, there's no 
um, false dichotomy here. In other words, there's no, like, we're not pitting one thing against another. We're, we are saved not by works, but we're saved in order to be called to good works, right? It's, I always say, cart, horse, right? You put the horse in front of the cart. That's how it should work. The grace of God drives our obedience. It's not our obedience being pushed along, you know, by, by some, you know, some faux thing. It is that God's grace intervenes in our lives, transforms us, and then that compels us to good works. This is exactly, although more succinctly in Paul, um, it's the same thing that Isaiah has been unpacking for us. That our goodness, our righteousness, our love for people has to flow out of a transformed heart and life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we got to say, we always tell people that our church is about loving Jesus, loving people, and helping people love Jesus. But then the statement that we use on our website and, you know, when I talk to people about our church is we do that through the gospel. Because you can't love people or love God or, or do anything else if our hearts aren't changed by his saving work. We need to be transformed by the gospel of grace. And as we are, then that, like, like a cup that's filled with water to the brim and just keeps getting water poured into it, it keeps flowing out. Our, our goodness towards others is an overflow of grace that's been poured into our hearts. We, we have to see it that way. We cannot pretend to be good people and honor the Lord Jesus. We, we can't. And, it, and our, our attempts to do so will not hold up long term. We need changed hearts. If you have a changed heart through Jesus today and you're not seeing a love of people flow through your life, you need to ask yourself why. And you need to ask the Lord Jesus to do something in you because loving people is an f- overflow of our love and transformation from, from God himself. So if we're looking at ourselves and going, I don't love people. And truthfully, we're always going to be drawn back to our old ways. Right? We, we need God's help all the time to love people. We need to be praying for God to work in us especially when there's people in our lives that are difficult or hurtful or hard to love. We're still called to love, but we can't just muster the strength to love them. We have to do so out of an overflow of the grace of God. So if you're, if you're a person who's trusted Jesus and have turned from your sins to him, that's amazing. Praise the Lord. But, but don't stop there. Paul is telling Titus to insist that the church that Titus was overseeing would be careful to devote themselves to good works. They, are, they go hand in hand. Loving Jesus and loving people go hand in hand. We have to do both, but we have to do both for the right reasons. And if you're here today and you don't know the transforming love of Jesus, that's step one. Stop pretending that you can make Jesus happy with you because you showed up to this building on a random Sunday morning. I'll just say this bluntly. He's not impressed by that. He's not. But what he wants from you is to turn, that you would turn from your own ways and come to him 
and be healed and made whole. That's what he wants. And Jesus enables us to do that because he died on the cross for our sins in our place to to justify us before the Father, to make it as if we've never sinned, that all of the sins we've committed are no longer held against us because they've been placed on Jesus. And that's what we're here as believers today. That's what we're here to celebrate and remember. And we do that through communion. We do that through reminding ourselves each week in our church, not every church does it weekly and that's okay, but we've chosen to, to partake of the Lord's table every week because every week we need to be reminded again that our salvation is not through our good works, but through the precious blood of Christ that was poured out for us on the cross. So we want to invite you as we sing in a moment, we'll sing a few songs together. And as, as we do, we'd, you're welcome if you're a believer today, if you've made that, that turn and have trusted Jesus. You can go to one of those tables. We have one up here and one in the back. Take, uh, a, there's a stack of cups, a couple of cups on top of each other for the sake of the, uh, the coronavirus thing. We're, we're trying to keep everyone from touching the same stuff. But just take the cup that you, that you need. There's bread in the lower cup. There's juice in the upper. And partake of that, not as a way to check off a box and go, see, I took these things, I drank and ate, and now God's happy with me. No, no, no. He's not happy about that if it's not done from a, overflow of love for him. But if you've been changed by him and you've been loved by him and you know that love, then you can be reminded that that bread is representative of his body and that, and that juice is representative of his blood that was poured out on the cross for your sins and mine. And we get to remind ourselves of that again, put ourselves back in that frame of mind and going, I deserve that death. I deserved to die. And Jesus took my place. And we can celebrate those things with him. And we also have uh, boxes mounted on the walls by, the, by each of those tables. So if you want to give uh, tithes or offerings in support of the church, you're welcome to do that. We don't require that. That's up to you as an act of worship. But um, I want to just encourage you to be reminded again that your salvation is from God, not from you. And so then your good works that pour out of you should be an overflow of what he's done in you. So with that on our hearts and minds, let's pray together. Then I'll have the band come up and we'll, we'll sing a few songs and partake of the table together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us so well, that you have done the very things we could never do for ourselves. Would you transform our hearts, Lord? Would you make us new people today? Would you allow your grace to flow through us into the lives of other people so that we can help them love Jesus as you have, as you have loved us? So we pray that all those things would be true in our hearts and we ask for your grace to be on us now. In Jesus' name, amen.